And if you are not heading downstairs, then you can go ahead and have your Bibles turned to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. Um, and real quick, a uh, little bit of an update on what we talked about last week. Uh, we talked how um, Ozon is actually going to be coming on. Ozon is an elder at a local, at another NAB, which is North American Baptist Church, one of our sister churches up in Puyallup. He spoke here several times. We were in the process of hiring an associate pastor, uh, and we went international for that. And so we're trying to uh, figure out those um, visa forms and getting him over here. So in that meantime, Ozon has willingly and joyfully uh, voiced his desire to come and help us and serve us here as we're uh, awaiting our associate pastor. And so we said he would be here next week, uh, but actually he won't. He'll be here um, the week after that. So October, I think that's 10th. Uh, so just wanted to bring clarification to that and ask you to continue to join us in prayer. Uh, last week we did ask you uh, to not only be praying, but we asked you if you're able to, to fast once a week. Just as we were seeking God's wills, we're asking him just to move in a way that, that Josh would be able to come and be here or make it clear uh, of some other path. And so we are, are asking you to join us in prayer and fasting through the month of October as we are just seeking God's will regarding Josh coming. If you have other questions, uh, I'd love to answer those after the service. Uh, we are in chapter 8. And so um, the title today is From Earthly Shadows to Heavenly Realities. And I think it'll make sense as we come in. Uh, let me just give a little bit of a flow. So, so chapter 7 is about Jesus as our greater high priest. Chapter 8 is about the greater covenant that he brings. And chapter 9 to the first half of chapter 10 is um, the greater sacrifice that he makes. So we have greater priesthood. Greater covenant, greater sacrifice. Now, the section that ran in chapter 8 today is like this transition. He's concluding the argument he made um, regarding chapter 7 about the priesthood. And, and we're going to get to verse 6 today where he introduces the new covenant. And in fact, 16 times from the time he introduces it in chapter 8 uh, throughout chapter 10, he will use the word covenant. So that's becoming a, a major theme that he'll be writing about, um, but we're kind of in this transition uh, section, concluding his argument about the priesthood, introducing us to the greater covenant that he's going to bring. And so, uh, being that we've spent three weeks in chapter 7, I think, uh, wrestling through, or this will be the third week that we're wrestling through the priesthood of Jesus, I thought, how can we start a little bit differently. What, what angle can we come on? How can we, what truth can we bring out of this? And so uh, I decided we should talk about hell for a little bit. Um, and so I know that's what you all were like, hey, that's where we should start. Family Sunday, that's exactly where we should begin. So I'm glad we're all on the same page. Um, but as I, I, as I began studying this passage, I I began just wrestling through with what the Bible says regarding hell, the reality of hell, and according to God's word, hell is a physical place. It's a place of torment, and the way he describes it in scriptures, it's everlasting suffering, a lake of fire, darkness, gnashing of teeth, and what we understand in God's word, 
is that everyone who comes from Adam, which is everyone, Adam's the first man, so which everyone comes from Adam, because of Adam's sin, we are born sinful. We're born rebellious. We're born resisting God's will rather than worshiping God. Romans says we would like to worship creation or anything else. And therefore, just as here in the United States, if someone rebelled against the government, if someone created anarchy, there would be a judgment to that person. So also, hell is the punishment for all who rebel against God's kingdom and God's rule. And so... uh, But there are many people who profess Christianity, and there are many religious and spiritual people in the world who deny the very existence of hell. They say that there's no way a loving God would ever send people to an eternal torment. There's no way. He's Remember, God is love, so that doesn't fit within our understanding of what we believe love is. At least that's how they would argue. So Rob Bell who was a pastor up in Grand Rapids. Actually, when my wife and I, we were in Michigan, he was the pastor up at a large church in Grand Rapids. Um, Since then, he has left the church, he's left the gospel, and he advocates for a very different type of gospel. And one thing that he will say is he does not believe in the existence of hell. He doesn't believe anyone will go to hell. He says it's all on the basis of love wins. He says, God's love is so powerful that he will win everyone to him, whether in this life or in the next life, and he doesn't want anyone to go to hell, therefore there will be no punishment. Joel Olstein, um, probably one of the, the, the faces, the, the most well-known faces of the prosperity gospel, he, when asked in an interview, he was asked, is Jesus the only way, the truth, and the life? And he said, if that's true, then, then where do people who worship other gods? He, and the question was, where do Muslims go? Where do Hindus go? Where do Buddhists go? And he said, well, I, I don't like to make judgments regarding people's eternal salvation. Which sounds humble, but it's really a false humility. And so, so the question then gets pressed, and, and he goes, well, what I believe is that God doesn't care so much on how we come to him, on what we call him, but that he will accept us from the many different ways that we will come to him. And so I believe that God wants everyone in heaven with him. And so that was his argument, which means Muslims, Mormons, Buddhists, Hindus, and everyone who worships a different God will one day be in heaven. Now, so there's those who deny the existence of hell, And not only do we have that happening today, but there's also the fact that we have turned the whole idea of hell into really a joke in this world. Not only will people joke around about it, but my wife and I, we were in uh, Whidbey Island this last week as we were celebrating her birthday, and we went up to Anacortes, and we're doing window shopping, and we walk past this one store, do you remember? And there was that board game, and the board game titled is Go to Hell. So it's a game. And so here's the description of the game. Be the first to reach eternal damnation. You'll you'll bounce between greed to lust to heresy with each infraction bringing you closer to the depths. Just don't end up in heaven unless you're packing a get out of heaven free card. Laugh. This is some sinful fun. Now nobody, 
nobody jokes about lethal injection. Nobody jokes about the electric chair. Nobody jokes about gas chambers. Nobody jokes in the first century about crucifixions. Those are terrifying judgments. And those aren't even close to the fiery judgment of hell that we read in God's word. And so here's why I bring this up. If hell isn't real, if there's no punishment for sin, if it's just simply a scare tactic, then Christianity is false and everything we're reading about Hebrews is wrong. Everything about the book of Hebrews, the entire argument that the author is making is void if there's nothing he's saving us from. What do we need? A greater priest offering a greater sacrifice for if there's no sin, if there's no punishment. If Hebrews is correct, there is a punishment. But if there's no punishment, if love wins, as defined by Rob Bell, everyone just makes it because that's how God wants it, despite our own hearts, then Hebrews and the entire Bible is false. So we have to wrestle through with this. So we've been spending these weeks on wrestling through that Jesus is a greater priest. And the only way that we can come to God is because we have a priest. Priests functioned in the Old Testament as a means of bringing about the very blessing and presence of God. And Jesus ultimately does that for us. But of course, if that's not a problem, then we don't need the book of Hebrews or the rest of this book. And so today, we're looking for three weeks in a row why Jesus is the better priest. Next week, we'll look at the, the greater covenant that he brings. And then next week-ish, the following week, we'll look at on the basis of the greater sacrifice. And so what I want us to do today is just to, to sit and bask in the truth of God's word that it talks about as the greater priesthood. I want you just to think about why this is good. So think of yourself like out on a beach, basking in the warmth of the sun, and yet we're going to bask in a far greater warmth, the goodness of God's word. And my hope and my prayer is that this truth, what we look at today, would just further deepen the roots of our faith into the rich, fertile soil of the gospel, and that we, with all the, the greater zeal and joy, would profess Jesus to be our Savior and great high priest. And so I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 in chapter 8. Each week we stand as we read God's Word, and we do this as a reminder every week that this Bible is different. It comes with the full authority of God for the purpose of teaching us, instructing us, correcting us, and equipping us for everything that God calls us to do. Here we go, chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. 
They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray, deepen our faith today. May our understanding of you and your grace and your mercy and how you sent your son Jesus to be our priest, to be our sacrifice, may our understanding grow. May our knowledge be rich today. May our hearts be made well. May they swell with joy as we see what Christ has done for us so that we could be saved and have everlasting life with you. And I pray if there's anyone who does not yet know you, that Lord, you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give them wisdom and understanding today, and you would give them eyes to see the truth and the beauty of your word. Father, we praise you this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So, so as I said, this is a, a transition section. Everything we're doing is getting to then verse 6 where he's going to start talking about the greater covenant and then he's going to finish chapter 8 about that. But the section we're looking at today is largely concluding that Jesus is our greater high priest. And so what I want us to do is just look at four reasons why Jesus is the better high priest that we need. And so some of this is, is recapping a little bit of what we have seen, and some of this is adding a little bit more new information that will be further unpacked either in chapter 8 or in chapter 9 and 10 as we continue to progress. But number one, Jesus holds both the offices of king and priest. Do, do you remember Melchizedek? All of our favorite guy. He's the guy that a couple of weeks ago, chapter 7, the author introduces, and he's, he's mentioned him a couple times in the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews is the only book that speaks of Melchizedek, and other than him mentioning him, in the Old Testament, he's only mentioned twice, Psalm 110, Genesis 14. He's completely mysterious, and we described him a couple of weeks ago like a comet. Remember that? He like shoots across the sky, we're like, oh, that's, that's great. And then he's gone, and you're like, oh, okay, we just move on. He reappears and reappears in chapter in Psalm 110. We're going, okay, so, so maybe he has a little bit more of a role than we thought, but then nothing until we come to the book of Hebrews, where the entire argument that Jesus is the greater priest rests on this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, from the Old Testament. And so what we saw a couple weeks ago is Melchizedek is this king and priest. Which there's no other king priest in the Bible except for Jesus. If you remember us going through that. In the Old Testament, uh, when we look at Israel, kings and priests were always separated. Kings came from the line of Judah. Priests came from the, Levi, from the tribe of Levi. No intermingling. In fact, it was, it was King Uzziah. That thought that he could come into the temple, offer incense, that which a priest would do. God condemned him right then and sentenced him with leprosy. 
Kings were not to be priests. Priests were not to be kings. They were to be separated. And yet when we come to verse 1, now the point in what we were saying. So he's saying everything I just said in chapter 7 about the priesthood of Jesus. He goes, we have this high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He's making it a point to not only mention that Jesus is priest, but the fact that he's seated on the throne and using the word majesty in heaven is a way to refer to the Father. So he's saying he shares in the very rule and the very power of God himself. You see, Old Testament kings represented God's power and his rule. And we had, we had evil kings and we had good kings, but even the good kings were not sufficient to fully bring about God's rule and power for God's people. We also had priests. We had sinful priests that we've read all throughout the book of Hebrews that they were weak. They had to offer, sin, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they can offer sacrifices for the people. And the priests were to represent God's blessing and God's presence. But because they're sinful, the people could not fully experience God's blessing and presence under the Old Testament priesthood. But then comes Jesus, the one who unites both the office of king and the office of priest. And in Jesus, we read, and the author has been making it clear that in him we experience God's rule, God's power, God's God's presence, God's blessing, His love, His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His goodness. What the Old Testament kings and priests could not do, His point has been, Jesus has done for us. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it's an amazing passage where Paul is getting ready just to walk through the amazing truth of the gospel. And he begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where do we find the blessings of God? In Christ. How many come to us in Christ? All the blessings of heaven. That's his point. Everything that's been promised for us comes to us in Jesus Christ. So that's how he begins this. He says, remember what we've been talking in chapter 7? And he just kind of wants to summarize it for us and saying, it's all in Jesus. Now we might say, well, how is that possible? After all, we begin this sermon by saying, we all, we all deserve hell. So how is it that we who are sinful now receive all of the blessings of heaven in Christ? And so that's where the next point comes in where Jesus deals decisively with our sins. So not only does he hold both king, uh, office of king and priest, and he does that perfectly so we experience his power, his blessing, his rule, and all that God has for us, and we see that it comes to us because he has dealt decisively with our sin. Look at the word seated in verse 1. We read, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated. So the fact that he's seated points to his kingship, that he sits on the very throne of God, sharing in the very rule of God. But the fact that he is seated also points to the fact that as our high priest, 
he's decisively dealt with our sins. And you say, well, well how, do we, how do we know that? Because the author has told us in chapter 1, verse 3, the very beginning of the book, where the author introduces us to Jesus, and he says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the very exact imprint of God himself. And he says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on eye, almost word for word for what we read here in chapter 8. Chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. You can turn just a page to the right. It says, every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins, what does he do? He sits down at the right hand of God. You see the contrast? Old Testament priests standing continually. Why? Because the job is never done. They're offering sacrifices for themselves. They're, asking, they're offering sacrifices for the people. Repeatedly, over and over and over again. And you know that there was priests and there was people as the Day of Atonement came. Where the priest would come and he'd offer a sacrifice for himself, offer one for the people. Then he would go into the Holy of Holies where he would sprinkle the blood upon the altar. You know that they were saying, wouldn't it be great if there was one priest who could offer one sacrifice and we would be done with all the bloody animal sacrifices that we make every single day and every single year. And what the author is wanting us to know is that all of those culminate and lead us to Jesus Christ, who he offers one sacrifice. And when we come into chapters 9 and 10, that's exactly what the author is going to be focusing on, the superiority, the greatness of the sacrifice of Jesus compared to that of the Old Testament sacrifices. Um, If you look at verse 12, We read that based upon Jesus' sacrifice, he says, I will remember their sins no more. That's what happens because Christ has come. When Jesus was on the cross in John chapter 20, verse 30, we read that his last words are, it is finished. Well, what's finished? The atonement, the paying the price for our sins. God's wrath has been absorbed. We, 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 we talked about it in the beginning. That because we are sinful, we all deserve God's wrath. That is what hell is. Um, hell's not the absence of God. Hell is the full presence of God's wrath for all of eternity. It's not that he's not there. He doesn't, it's not that he doesn't know what's happening in this realm. He knows exactly what's happening. His Full wrath is being poured out at all time. But what we read is that at the cross, Jesus absorbed God's wrath. That's that word propitiation that we use so much here. Jesus was the propitious sacrifice, absorbing God's wrath for us. So that if we believe in him, and God's wrath has been absorbed in Jesus, then what's left for us? God's blessings in Christ. His forgiveness adoption, justification, experiencing the blessing of his rule and his grace and his kindness and his mercies. The whole point of the book of Hebrews and throughout the gospel and the whole whole Bible is that there is no way we can obtain 
forgiveness of sins by our own work. If you've come here, I think we said this last week, if, you, if you've come here and you thought through your church attendance, you thought through the giving of, of offerings and putting them in the offering buckets and, and you'll just give money to the church for the advancement of God's kingdom and that will obtain forgiveness. Or if you volunteer in every way here or maybe in community service projects, there's no amount of good works that we can do that will ever satisfy God's wrath. The only currency God takes is the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's only what is able to be the propitious sacrifice to absorb God's wrath for us. Ephesians 1 says this, verses 4 and 5, Even as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. It says, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Jesus has always been the plan. Do you know that? Like he's always been the plan. There was no plan A, B, C, D, and those failed, and now Jesus has come. Great, he'll come as cleanup. He'll fix everything. And the cross is not some type of cosmic child abuse, which many people who have denied the very existence of hell, who say there is no punishment, which they say that it is. They will say that there is a father who basically throws his son down to, heaven, down to earth and that Jesus has to come down here and suffer his father's abuse and his wrath. And they go, what, what kind of love is that? But then we read in the Gospels where it says in Galatians 1.4 that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. We don't have the Father throwing the Son down, forcing Him down. But the Trinity, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have perfectly decided upon the Gospel, and Jesus willingly and joyfully leaves heaven to come to earth, that He would lay down His life, so that through His death, God would be glorified, which is why when we go to John 17, Jesus will say, I have come to glorify you. Now glorify me in your presence. The cross is not cosmic child abuse. In fact, we read in 1 John 4 that this is love, that God would send his son, and the son would willingly come to lay down his life for you and I, even when we were sinners so that we would be saved, so that we would be justified and forgiven. I want you to know, and I pray that you know, there is nothing we do to earn our way to, sal to salvation. We don't pay God back. There's nothing we do that makes us look more presentable before God. According to the Bible, the only way that we are saved is by the very grace of God. Through Jesus coming to die on the cross for us. That he would not only be the great priest, but as we get into chapter 9, we'll see that he is also the great sacrifice who has done everything for us. And then we see that he's also the one who ministers in the heavenly reality of earthly shadows. This is the third reason why Jesus is the greater priest. If you look at verses 4 and 5, there it says, We'll start in verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices 
Thus, it is necessary for this priest, meaning Jesus, also to have something to offer. So priests must present sacrifices. That's the point. Verse 4. Now, if he, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. So, so track with the argument. All priests offer sacrifices. But Jesus could not be an earthly priest. Why? Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve, the priests according to the law, the Levitical priests, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Now, we're only dipping our toes into this topic today. Again, chapters 9 and 10 is when he's going to further unpack what it means that Jesus comes and fulfills the, the shadows of the Old Testament. But here's his point. Jesus is not an earthly priest because he doesn't make sacrifices according to the Old Testament. He's not of Levi. He doesn't offer lambs or goats or bulls. He offers no such sacrifices as dictated according to the Old Testament. He offers a different kind of sacrifice. He's a priest in the true tent, not one that was made with man. So the temp, the tent was the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which then eventually became the temple when Jerusalem was built. And so that represented the very presence of God. And we're told... That that's not where Jesus goes. That's where earthly priests go. But Jesus is not in the copy, is not in the shadow, but he's in the true heavenly reality. Now, what exactly does that mean? When Moses was given this vision that, um, of the tabernacle that he was to build and all the furniture that was supposed to go into it, does that mean there's actually a heavenly correspondence to it one-to-one? Maybe. Maybe it's analogical, maybe it's univocal. So meaning, don't press the details too far, meaning that there's actually a temple, there's actually you know, a lampstand, and there's actually things that we see in the earthly tabernacle there. But what we understand is where there are actual literal ones in heaven, they all point to a much greater reality, to the true presence of God. And that's where Jesus is. Old Testament priests served in earthly shadows, not the true reality, which is where Jesus goes. The earthly priest would offer a bloody sacrifice of animals and goats and then enter into the holy places. Jesus offered the sacrifice of himself and then entered into the true holy place where God himself dwells. We read this. If you look at, turn the page to chapter 9, verse 24. He says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Do you see the greater? Old Testament priests were in what represented the dwelling place of God. Jesus actually goes into the true presence of God where he ministers and he intercedes. And we are told, remember as we've looked in chapter 4 and we looked in chapter 7, that Jesus, as our great high priest, intercedes at the right hand of the Father. So when we face temptation, when sin comes our way, 
He directs the very grace and power of God from the throne of God to us so that we can stand firm in our trials, so that we can overcome sin, so that we can still live in a way that honors and pleases God. So there's, there's three things that we probably need to point out from the fact that Jesus ministers in the true heavenly reality. Number one, the author is not saying the Old, Test, the Old Covenant and the Old Testament sacrificial system was bad. It was set up by God. And it did exactly what God wanted it to. In fact, Paul in Romans 7.7 7 says, What then shall we say? Is the law sin? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law was given to us that we would see how sinful we are. The law was given to us that we would see our need for grace. The law was given to us that we would see we need sacrifices. We need priests to intercede for us because we're not worthy to come into the very presence of God. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a means of grace that instructed us and prepared us for a much greater priest who would offer a much greater sacrifice. Number two, the Old Covenant was temporary. What we read is it was copies and it was shadows. The, what the author is doing here, he's teaching us how to read our Bibles. Do you see it? He's telling us, okay, so there's these things that took place in the Old Testament. But now, because Jesus has come, we realize those were temporary. Those were copies. Those were shadows. Those weren't the true realities. He's teaching us to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, through what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I will tell you, you will not fully understand an Old Testament passage until you also see it through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? We won't. You say, well, we can understand things. You can understand things. And there are good truths, but we won't come to a fuller understanding until we look back through the lens of Christ, which is why when Jesus was on the Emmaus Road and he's walking with the two disciples and, and, and they don't understand what has happened, and so then he begins with the law and the prophets and he explains all of scriptures, which would have just been really cool to hear. And he explains how they all point to him on how Christ gives the fuller explanation to everything that we come to in the Old Testament. That's number two. Number three, we see that Jesus is plan A. That's the point here. The Old Covenant was shadows, was copies. It was temporary. It was pointing for the greater sacrifice. Never was Israel's hope to be fully in the Old Testament sacrifice or the Old Testament priest. They knew that as they, as they made these sacrifices, they were done in faith that God would one day offer the much greater sacrifice through his son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus fulfills the entire sacrificial system. He brings the temple, Levitical priesthood, animal sacrifices all to an end never to be reinstituted. Now there's massive implications for this. Here's one. Here's just one implication when we understand that Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament sacrificial system 
And that no longer do we make temples and priests and animal sacrifices. When we go to India, when we go to China, when we go to Korea, when we go wherever we do throughout the world, we are not instructing people how to build a temple. We're not instructing them on how to build altars. We do not need to convince them that they need priests. We're not telling them that they need priestly garments. We're not, te- we're not giving them some type of dress code when they gather as a church. Why? Because it's all been fulfilled in Christ. There's only one thing people need to know, and that's that Jesus is the greater high priest who offered the greater sacrifice for our sins. John Piper, who is a pastor and author, and he wrote, and he, he was helpful in this part, he said, when we look at the New Testament, there is no authorization for worship buildings, for worship dress, for worship times, our worship music, our worship liturgy, our worship size, or 35, 45-minute sermons, or Advent poems, or choirs, or instruments, or candles, or anything else. There's no instruction for those type things. And he goes, and the reason for this is, he says, the New Testament is a missionary document. He says, the message of this book is meant to be carried to every people on earth and incarnated in every culture and the world. He says, that's why our high priest came and did the tabernacle and sacrifices and feasts and vestments and dietary laws and circumcision and priesthood. He said, the Old Testament was mainly a come and see religion. The New Testament is mainly a go and tell religion. And to make that possible, the Son of God has abolished, has not abolished worship, but made it the kind of radically, spiritually engagement with God in Christ that can and must happen in every culture on earth. Worship is not trivialized as we come into the New Testament, but he says it's intensified, deepened, and made the radical fuel and goal of missions. I thought that was pretty good. When we go, whether you're going to your neighbor's house, whether you're going to to a local gathering here in Lacey, anywhere else in the United States, or to any country, we take the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, that he's fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system, that pointed our need for a greater priest, a greater sacrifice, that revealed our sinfulness, And that it's all met in Jesus. I mean, think about it like this. Did you ever realize Jesus never went into the Holy of Holies when he was here on earth? Did you ever think about that? He went to the temple. We saw that when he's like, when he's young. And we saw he would go to teachings in the temple. But he never went to the Holy of Holies. Strange, isn't it? Like the Holy of Holies was the earthly place that represented the very blessing of God. If anyone was worthy, wouldn't it have been Jesus? If anyone should have gone there, shouldn't it have been Jesus? And yet, where did he never go and never even try to go? He never went to the Holy of Holies because he wasn't interested in shadows, in copies. He made the true sacrifice 
where now he dwells in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God where he ministers on behalf of you and me, interceding for you and I every single day, pouring forth grace and mercy so we can follow him, so we can lead lives of righteousness, so we can love our husbands and our wives and shepherd our children and do that which he calls us, not in our strength, but in the grace that he gives us every single day because he's our eternal priest. And we know that that will never end because in chapter 7, the author made clear the argument that Jesus is eternal, therefore his ministry is eternal. We never need a greater priest. And all of this moves to verse 6 where we see that Jesus establishes a better covenant that lasts forever. And we're not really going to touch on that today other than just noticing what verse 6 says, as it is, Christ has attained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The old covenant was temporary. The new covenant, the forgiveness that Jesus offers, the priesthood that he has, the blessings that he gives, They last forever in Christ. There will never be another covenant. There will never be another way in which we come to to God. There will be never another way in which we are forgiven. The new covenant is forever. And that's why when we skip down and we read, like in verse 10, God says, and I will be their God. Or in verse 12, he says, and I will remember their sins no more. And then he says in verse 13, basically three times that the old covenant is now becoming obsolete. It's vanishing. Because the new covenant in Jesus Christ has come. That we could be absolutely forgiven. That we could experience the very blessing and presence of God on a daily basis through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now to circle it all back, if hell's not real, then we don't need any of this. What do we need? A priest to offer a sacrifice. What do we need any of it for? What was the Old Testament sacrificial system for? If God has no wrath, if love wins, then there is no need for the priesthood. But if there is a wrath, and God did create us to be in his image, that we would have a relationship with him forever, and that's been disrupted because of sin. And the only means in which we can be forgiven and experience those blessings is through Christ, then that's exactly why we need a priesthood. That's exactly why these truths are so beautiful. And that's exactly why the, why the author is using this argument for the church. Remember what the church is going through. They're debating about abandoning Christianity because they're suffering. They're debating about going back to Judaism. They're, ban- they're debating about leaving who Christ is and what he has done. But the author is saying, hold on. How can you go back to a shadow? How can you go back to a copy? Jesus is the only way. If you leave this, then you leave the only way that God brings forgiveness of sins. So I I ask you, you, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted in him that you would have forgiveness of sins through Christ alone? 
And I want to encourage you also, thinking through your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members who have not yet trusted in Jesus. This is the message they need to know. While you might not start off with the priesthood, you might not start with sharing Melchizedek, maybe, you know, that could be cool. But these are the truths that you and I need to know. They're the truths that every person needs to know about Christ, that he's come to die on the cross for our sins. And so I pray that these truths enrich your faith, have strengthened you, so that as you understand who Jesus is, your roots of faith have grown deeper into your understanding of Christ, that you would not waver in unbelief or doubt as we go through life and as we experience sins and trials and temptations. Let us pray, and then we will partake of communion.